This afternoon, we want to look at the next unit in this first chapter of Colossians, namely verses 21 to 23. And you will recall that we had distinguished it as a uh, particularly distinct unit when we outlined the structure of the entire first chapter some weeks back. Now, at the outset this afternoon, let's ask what's the relationship between this unit and the previous unit, particularly what's the relationship between verse 21 and verse 20. So I ask you to ponder that for a moment, and then you can risk your reputation or your wrong answer in response. The relationship between verse 21 and verse 20. Or is there a relationship? Is he starting something brand new here? Does it have no connection to what precedes it? What was the first thing you said, Ben? In verse 20? He's speaking about having made peace the cross. Very good. All right. So is there another word in verse 20 that would uh, emphasize or expand upon what you said there? Yes, reconciliation. So what do we have in the relationship between verse 20 and verse 21? We actually have an, a relationship of antithesis, don't we? The opposite of reconciliation or making peace is alienation or hostility. So this <clears throat> section that begins in 21 is antithetical to the section that ends in verse 20. Now we want to dig into why the apostle is doing this, but nonetheless, <clears throat> the language of opposition is here in verse 21 vis-a-vis over against language of reconciliation and peace. Alienation is the antithesis of reconciliation. Alienation or estrangement, the opposite of reconciliation. Hostility, which is a word he uses here in verse 21, the antithesis of pacification. Hostility or enmity, the opposite of peace. All right, so he's now examining what is the opposite character of what he has described in terms of the arena of the new creation beginning in verse 15. He always does this in his epistles. He's looking at what is over against the arena of salvation or the work of salvation. And here he is focusing upon that antithesis in terms of the Colossians' identity, their condition, their condition of mind, namely the thoughts or intents or desires of their minds, the acts of the Colossians, their deeds, their works, their behavior. And, of course, this antithetical element is acknowledging or reminding them or drawing them into the remembrance of their sinful nature, their sinful character, their by nature sinful character. Now, of course, um, this is a pagan culture, and we would immediately equate sinfulness with paganism because of its resistance to the acknowledgement or worship of the one true God. But Paul would not treat things differently if you're talking to a Jewish audience, as you will find when he explains that matter in Romans 2. So it doesn't make any difference whether it's Jewish or Gentile personalities. Here it is specifically Gentile personalities, although we don't want to minimize the fact that there may have been converts from the Jewish community in this Colossian church. 
But the majority of this congregation was drawn out of Gentile paganism. So that pagan character is outlined here. That pagan narrative is outlined very briefly in this 21st verse. It was a pagan alienation over against God and his son, the Savior, Lord Jesus. It was a pagan enmity or hostility. He uses the word enmity frequently in the book of, Revel- book of Romans. So this aspect of hostile enmity against God is characteristic of this pagan world. And the evil deeds which they performed was also part of their sinful behavior. Now, we had talked a little bit at the beginning of this series about the character of Colossae as a city, as a city which was in the Greco-Roman Empire. We noted that it was a prosperous city. We noted that it prospered in many pagan ways, including its devotion to idols and gods and goddesses, its devotion to the games of the theater, including the gladiator games, which, in my personal opinion, is rank paganism, uh, Russell Crowe notwithstanding. You can't watch that movie. At least I don't think you ought to be watching it at all. But you, you can't watch that movie and have any kind of sense that that's not rank, brutal paganism in front of you. <clears throat> so forget it. Leave it alone. Don't bother. <clears throat> paganism in the arena. Paganism in drama, which included a great deal of ludity. So this city, though it's prosperous and flourishing, is a city which is prosperous and flourishing out of its pagan economy, its pagan culture, its pagan ethos. Paul is therefore reminding these these pagan Colossian Christians, these once upon a time pagan Colossian Christians, that that was what dominated them. They were dominated in their minds, actions, and behavior by alienation, hostility, and evil. All right, now... These things of verse 21 have been reversed. These things of verse 21 have been reconciled. These things of verse 21 have been pacified. They've been pacified in an arena of the new creation. They've been pacified in an arena whose head preeminent in rank is first or chief in that order, in that drama, in that arena. Who is that preeminent head? That preeminent head of the first order of rank and power. He is the one of whom the apostle spoke in verse 15 and spoke again in parallel language in verse 18b. He is the very image an icon of the invisible God, namely, he is the beloved son of his father in heaven. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all this is obvious in terms of how this epistle is unfolding and how the sections of this chapter are unfolding. But we want to ask ourselves now, since we're dealing with the antithetical character, this is the first time in which the apostle has kind of zeroed down. He focused in on the antithetical sinful nature of the Colossians before they were converted. We want to ask, what kind of arena is this arena of reconciliation? This arena of the new creation. This arena of the protological head of the new world order in heaven and on earth. What is the nature of this arena of reconciliation, pacification, and reversal? All right, now, I'm suggesting a litany of that arena. I'm using the word litany somewhat uh, uh, loosely here, but I'm suggesting a litany of that new creation arena, the arena of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, based upon the language of the apostle as it telescopes, as it unfolds, as it builds, as it explicates and enlarges upon itself in this section. 
And I'm going to go back to verse 12, and I'm going to ask you for the first question, or the first element of this litany, what kind of an arena is this arena into which these Colossian Christians have been reconciled? From verse 12, what do you say? Yes, it is an arena of the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the kind of world it is. So this world of reconciliation is just not a world of pacification. It is a world of rich light. It is a world of a lavish inheritance. Verse 12 is part of the litany of that arena of reconciliation into which the Colossian believers have been drawn as well as the apostle Paul himself. All right, now, in verse 13, what kind of arena is this world of the new creation? From verse 13, you can tell me that it is a world of the kingdom of his son of love or his beloved son, the son of the father. All right, so this is a domain, this uh, new order or new created order is a domain. It is a realm. It is a kingdom. And whose kingdom is it? It is the kingdom of the beloved, the son of the father's love, the beloved son of God. So <clears throat> into this arena, you've been incorporated by a loving personality, by an affectionate personality. You've been in- incorporated into a kingdom whose king is your Lord and Savior. All of this in terms of this pattern of reversal from alienation to reconciliation. Well, there's something else in verse 13. There's another element that is there, not just the kingdom into which you've been transferred, but you've been transferred out of another kind of kingdom. And what does that verse say about that world order? It is the domain of darkness. It is the present order of darkness compared to the inheritance of the saints of light. So there's that contrast there. But in this part of the litany, we're reminded that the darkness of this present evil age has been dispelled in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Now, the next element of this litany, the next element that describes this arena of the new creation is found in verse 14. What kind of a world is it? Yes, it includes forgiveness of sins, the blotting out of the transgressions of those that belong to it. What else is part of that arena according to verse 14? It is an arena of redemption, meaning you've been released from bondage. You've been released from captivity. You've been released from the domain of darkness in which you've been captured and captivated. Now, with your sins blotted out, you have been set free in the new cre- the, the kingdom of the new creation, the order of the new creation. Now, <clears throat> to whom do you belong in that arena. Verse 15. And these, how is he described in that 15th verse? He is the image of God. Very good. What else? He is the firstborn of that order. He is the firstborn of that new creation order, the one preeminent or the head of that new creation environment and the very icon or image of the visible God, invisible God, visibly manifest. Now, in verse 18, he uses that parallel language, namely firstborn, only there he indicates that in that world of the new creation, You belong to not the firstborn of the creation, the new creation, but the firstborn of 
dead. The resurrection of the dead. Firstborn from the dead by resurrection. Now that may seem like, you know, just a incidental comment, but notice that when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, he's talking about all that's involved in that resurrection order. Namely, that the body of the Lord Jesus, which was raised from the grave, that body has been translated into glory. It is a body glorified in its resurrection, subject to glory, able to live in glory, able to be seated in glory. In other words, it's a resurrection body which is fitted and suited for glory. It is not a body like our own typically. It is a transformed body. He was, <clears throat> that transformation was previewed on the Mount of Transfiguration, but at the resurrection, that body was capable of entering into glory, suited and fit for it. So this is the arena to which <clears throat> the believer, the Colossian believer, has been raised and entered into. You entered into an arena in which the body of Christ has already been glorified as the firstborn of that order of creation and therefore the leader or preeminent uh, uh, chief of the characteristic of that arena, which is also your anticipated characteristic, that you will have a resurrected body which is fit for glory, glorified as his body is glorified. This is the kind of world order in the new creation into which we've been introduced. These are all present uh, gifts and blessings, and they will be completely consummated gifts and blessings at the conclusion of the age when the Lord of glory returns in power and might. All right, and finally, the last part of the litany is what we've already indicated from verse 20, namely that reconciliation or peace with God through the blood of the cross of Jesus is a cornerstone of this new world order. This new creation is an order of a world of light, the inheritance of the light that the saints already enjoy. It is a kingdom. It is a kingdom which belongs to the beloved Son of God, a kingdom in which he is beloved and a kingdom in which his sons and daughters are beloved in that Son of the Father. This is a kingdom in which you've been transferred out of another particular world. You've been transferred out of the world of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom and the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a world in which you have redemption from your bondage and it is a world in which you have forgiveness of your sins it is a world in which you belong preeminently to the lord of that world that firstborn of that new created arena the head of that environment it is a world in which you belong to the resurrection of the dead because of him who is the leader and chief of the resurrection of the dead glorified in his own resurrected Easter morn body. And it is a world of reconciliation where you are at peace with God and eternally reconciled and made at peace with him through the blood of his cross. All right. I want you to see the, shall we say, unfolding pattern the apostle is drawing upon here. He is drawing his readers into this new creation environment, this world of the new era which has broken into history as a result of Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And he does so in a way that enriches and enlarges with, with um, vocabulary or with imagery here, which draws them into the wonder of that drama. Now, this arena is wondrous to behold. It is wondrous to possess. This arena is glorious to behold. It is glorious to possess. It is a blessed arena and the sure possession of those in heaven on earth who have been transferred into it. That litany that we just outlined, that those verses as we just uh, uh, telescoped them or unfolded them, 
in terms of the nature of this new creation environment, that litany is a litany worthy of rehearsal and rejoicing. In other words, the imagery here, the imagery is what belongs to you. It is your inheritance, to steal the word from verse 12, but it is a rich inheritance that unfolds in from verse 12 to 13 to 14 to 15 to 18 to 20, etc. In other words, there's a, an ongoing enrichment of what treasures and blessings and graces belong to you as a result of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, becoming incarnate, crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and seated at the right hand of glory. <clears throat> this is your world. This is the world of the Colossian believers. This is the world of the Apostle Paul. This is the litany of a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, note the dominant pronoun in this unit, verses 21 to 23. What's the pronoun that jumps out at you here? It is you, and the you is Church. no Colossians. Yes, the you is the Colossian Christian. So that's the dominant pronoun because he's fo- he switched his focus from Christ Himself, verses fifteen to twenty, to the Colossians themselves. Now. <clears throat> In this series, we've used the phrase narrative biography. Narrative biography has been used in our comments on this letter. So, with respect to that pronoun, whose narrative biography is present in that pronoun? Not Paul's. Who's the you? It is the Colossians. Okay, now why am I doing this? I want to put some flesh on the bones of the Colossians. I don't want them to be abstractions to you. I want you to have a sense that this, that this idea of a narrative biography applies to them. They have a biographical narrative in and of themselves. They have a personality and a characterization in and of themselves. <clears throat> Colossian believers, first of all, as all human beings in relationship to Time. Time is a determining pattern or part of personalization, biographical narrative, and sequence. So what time frame do you see here in uh, verse 21? You were. You formerly were, or you once were. What time frame do you see in verse 22? But now, all right, so the time frame which constructs the past with the present, once upon a time, and now in the present time, you have a story. You have a narrative, biographical story. And this is substantive narrative, biographical detail. Once upon a time, you were hostile, alienated. You were at enmity. You were participating in evil deeds. We're not going to go into detail anymore about that because when we come to chapter 3, Paul is going to elaborate on their previous works of iniquity. But this is real flesh and blood activity. This is real personal alienation and hostility. This is actual enmity against God and his son in their once upon a time narrative. Once you were there, you were this. Once you were everything that he mentions in verse 21. In their lives, in their narrative biographical lives, these Colossians were once upon a time hostile, not reconciled, estranged from God, not at peace with him in and through the blood of Christ, They were living in an unreconciled state, 
That was their biographical story. So what they were in terms of their narrative story is being elaborated here in verse 21. But now I want you to think about their once upon a time narrative story mirroring another once upon a time narrative story. Their once upon a time narrative biography mirroring another once upon a time narrative biography. And who may I be thinking of? The Apostle Paul himself. For was not Paul once upon a time alienated from God? At enmity with God, particularly the Son of God, and hostile against the kingdom of the beloved Son of the Father? Was he not engaged in evil deeds out of that enmity and hostility in his mind? And also in his actions, let's look at the litany of the once upon a time Saul of Tarsus. And we begin, and I ask you to turn in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. I'm going to encourage you to look at each of these verses as we go through them because I want you to note the way that Paul describes things in the vocabulary or the language that he uses. In Acts chapter 7, 58, describing the stoning of Stephen, when they had driven him, that is Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He stands by while blessed Stephen is stoned to death. And he consents to that act, to that evil act in which he manifests his own hostility to God and to his word. Now, don't. Turn the page, but look down now at chapter 8, verse 1. That verse says something about Saul. What does it say? Shout it out. He was in hearty agreement with the death or the murder of Stephen. In his own mind, in his own behavior, in his own actions, he was lending his own agreement and endorsement to what was done. Skip down to verse 3 now in that same 8th chapter. What's he doing now? He's ravaging the church. He's even entering into Christian houses and dragging men and women out of those houses and putting them in prison. He's arresting them. He is imprisoning them. He is persecuting them and dragging them out of their uh, Christian world and try, trying to force them into his non-Christian world by compulsion. Now over to chapter 9, verse 1. The litany of the evil deeds of Saul of Tarsus. The world of Saul of Tarsus. The, un, the unreformed, untransferred, the unregenerate world of Saul of Tarsus. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now what is he doing? He's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> His whole passion, his whole uh, persona, his whole uh, public speech and private speech as well is murder and hostility against the disciples of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean 
the 12 disciples, that means the followers of Jesus here. Verse 2 of that ninth chapter. How does he continue to promote that hostility and enmity? He has letters from the synagogues and the high priests to arrest these people. Notice, the people of the way and to bring them to Jerusalem. People of the way in verse 2. That will become explicit in the next passage, Acts 22, verse 4. So let's turn ahead to Acts 22, verse 4. Keep in mind what we're doing here. We're looking at how Paul describes himself in terms of Colossians 1.21. Alienated, hostile, evil deeds. Paul's own narrative biography is a mirror reflection of the Colossians' narrative biography. Acts 22, verse 4. What's described there? Persecutions of the way. Now, Bob gave us a synonym for the way, but this is an interesting term that also appeared back in the ninth chapter. Why were the Christians called the way? Okay, quite possibly from Jesus' own comment. They had carried it on as a a moniker of their their identity, like a slogan of their identity, that they belonged to the way, that is, they belonged to the one who had said, I am the way. So in belonging to the way, they were belonging to him, the one who was the way, the truth, and the life. And here in Acts 22, the Apostle Paul is persecuting these people unto death by binding them, tying them up perhaps with chains or with thongs of leather, and then bringing them into prison, reflecting upon his enmity against the church of the way. And we're not done. Acts 26, verse 9. And now he uses a word that you've already read in Colossians 1.21, though it's not the same Greek word. Hostile, read. You were hostile, Colossians 1.21. I was hostile. Acts 26, 9. It's not the same Greek word, but it is a synonym. Now, this is the first time he mentions the object of his hostility. It's been implicit, but here he mentions it explicitly. To whom is he hostile? It's the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 11 of that same chapter 26, He punishes them in all the synagogues. He tried to get them to blaspheme. Blaspheme what or who? The name of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, to blaspheme that sacred name. All right, that's the... uh, Recollection of Paul in the book of Acts. Now let's turn forward in some of his own epistles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He repeats something we already know, but let's note it again. What, what does he indicate there in 1 Corinthians 15, 9?
He persecuted the church of God. The next comment is in Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14. Now here we learn something more, something we haven't noted before, something he hasn't said before. He says something he has said before, but then he adds to it. What does he repeat? Persecution. Very good. Now, why was he persecuting? Because of the tradition of the Jews. He was advancing Judaism. He was advancing a kind of Judaism. Is he advancing Old Testament Judaism? So what Judaism is he advancing? The Pharisees translation of the Old Testament. Well, let's put Pharisees tradition of what the Old Testament means. In other words, he's dealing with the intertestamental Judaism, that kind of Judaism that grew up and produced Phariseeism and the uh, rabbinical Judaistic movement which manufactured expands upon Old Testament uh, truths and realities to the point of perverting them. So, notice what his motivation here is. He acknowledges that he was doing all of this in the name of ancient Jewish tradition. And he repeats that in Philippians 3, verse 6, when he adds another little nuance there. If you take verse 6 in combination with verse 5, it also elaborates a little bit about what we noted in Galatians 1, 13, and 14. He characterizes himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he's claiming that he was a super Jew. A super Jew. And... With respect to the law, a Pharisee, interpreting the law not according to Moses, per se, but according to the Pharisaic understanding of Moses. And out of that zeal, notice, it's the zeal of this Judaism in which he was steeped at the feet of Gamaliel and elsewhere. It is out of this zeal that he persecutes the church. Justifying his enthusiasm, his aggression against the church in terms of his Jewish ritual and traditional uh, interpretation and practice. And the final verse in which Paul talks about the evil of his pre-Christian life is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13. Here he adds something that, once again, we've implicitly noted, but he makes it explicit here. First Timothy 1.13. We've heard him note that he was a blasphemer before. We've heard him note that he was a persecutor before. What does he add here? Violence, a violent aggressor, not just passive, not just, well, come quietly, but violently seizing, laying hands, arresting, binding, tying up, throwing into prison, standing by while people are murdered, contributing and uh, (coughs) agreeing to violence, even the violence that leads to death in Stephen's case. All right, so we had... The litany of the new creation 
in Colossians 1, 12 to 20. Here is another litany from Acts, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Timothy. Here's another litany. It is a litany of the hostility and alienation of the narrative biography of Saul of Tarsus. Now, that we've looked at both of those, namely the narrative biography of the Colossians in terms of Colossians 1.21, and we've also looked at Paul's or Saul of Tarsus's narrative biography in terms of enmity, hostility, and evil deeds. You see what the method to my madness is. Why is Paul writing to the Colossians with this language? Because he's, prov- he's providing a reflection of himself in that language. He's drawing himself into identification with them in the very same way that they are identified with hostility and enmity and alienation against the kingdom of God and of his Christ. He is saying, I once upon a time was where you are, where you were. I identify with you. I participated in the same hostility, alienation, and evil that you participated in, even though mine was focused in a different direction than yours was. Yours was focused out of your paganism. Mine was focused out of my bastard Judaism. But it ends up being a synonymous or symmetrical paradigm. Paul's self-identification enables him to draw the Colossians into his story as he draws himself into their story. And there we leave the story for a break. Now, we've emphasized that Paul's narrative biography matches the narrative biography of the Colossian Christians. He, hostile, alienated, and at enmity with God and his son, the Lord Jesus, out of his Jewish past, the Colossians, hostile, alienated, and at enmity with God and his son, the Lord Jesus, out of their pagan past, their pagan Gentile past. A mirror reflection and identification of the not-in-Christ story of a Jewish Pharisee in the not-in-Christ story of Gentile pagans. I think it's important for you to grasp this mirror mutuality, this identification and participation, reflection and self-identification. But there is yet one more narrative biography which is mirrored for us in verse 21. And this story reflects the story of Jew and Gentile alike. This story mirrors their story so as to reverse their story. Whose narrative biography am I referring to now? The Lord Jesus Christ. But if we are talking about alienation and hostility and evil, is it not a contradiction to speak of the narrative biography of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he not holy, harmless, and undefiled? It would be a contradiction to describe him as estranged, hostile, and weighed down by by evil, would it not? But does not the New Testament tell us that he endured the contradiction? He undertook the contradiction. He bore the contradiction of sinners. And here I am suggesting that Christ not only endured the opposition of sinners in their hostility against him personally, but as Paul says, he became the opposition when he who knew no sin became sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here is the amazing grace of the Son of God. 
He became the alienated one from his father in his incarnate narrative biography. He became the hostile one against God his father in his incarnate narrative biography. He became the evil one against heaven in his incarnate narrative biography. All this contradiction of sinners, he became vicariously in order that he might reverse that personally. He became estranged from his father so that he might make his sons and daughters friends of God. He became hostile to God so that he might cause his precious sons and daughters to find peace with God. He became the substitutionary evil one for his sons and daughters so that they might become the pure, innocent, holy ones before God as he is pure, innocent, and holy before God his Father and the Holy Spirit in his person. The narrative biography of the Lord Jesus must mirror the narrative biography of the Apostle Paul as it must mirror the narrative biography of the Colossian Christians as it must mirror the narrative biography of us Christians. It must or it's not done. It must or it's not reversed. He must become the reversal of himself so he can reverse yourself. It has to happen. And the apostle is using this language in Colossians 1.21 intentionally and purposely. He's not only talking about the language of his story. He's not only talking about the language of the Colossian story. He's talking about the language of Christ's story in his incarnation and substitutionary atonement. There is narrative drama here. He is drawing his readers into the story with which he identifies with, with which Christ identified with. Dramatizing their transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the domain of the light of the new creation in Christ Jesus who dwells in that inaccessible light. The incarnate Son of God, the incarnate Son of God must substitute himself in sinners' alienation, sinners' hostility, sinners' evil. He must substitute himself into this narrative if there is ever to be salvation, redemption, justification, reconciliation of that narrative for sinners. On their behalf, in their place, as their vicarious substitute, the Lord Jesus mirrors their story in his story so that his story may be mirrored in their story. Here is the superb redemptive historical story. The supreme biblical theological story. The Colossians sinner's story reflects Saul of Tarsus's story, reflects the crucified Jesus of Nazareth story, so that the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth story may mirror itself in the Apostle Paul's story, and the Apostle Paul's story in Christ may be mirrored in the Colossians' Christian story. The hinge point of the story is Jesus taking the story into himself, so that all are outside of him are drawn into him, whether apostle or follower of Christ in Colossae. And is that not precisely what Paul writes in verse 22 of Colossians 1? Is that not what verse 22 is all about? Through the body of Christ's death on the cross, the Colossians have a new story, a new creation story, a holy, blameless, beyond reproach story. The reversal of their verse 21 story flows through the story of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross, and there he becomes the contradiction of sinners, 
There He is made sin who knew no sin. There on that bloody tree He reverses their alienation, their enmity, their evil deeds and presents them to His Father spotless, dressed all in white robes, no stain of sin upon them, no stench of death rising from them, no condemnation hovering over them, no separation from Him forevermore. No alienation forevermore. How the Colossian readers of this epistle of Paul would rejoice in this good news story of the firstborn of creation, the firstborn by resurrection from the dead. It would be to them in their pagan bondage nothing less than a new creation and Christo in Christ. Nothing less than a resurrection from the dead and Christo in Christ. Nothing less than an appearance before the face of their Father in heaven in which they would be regarded as holy, blameless, and irreproachable and Christo in Christ. Because en Christo, in Christ, old pagan things were passed away. En Christo, new Christian things had appeared. They have taken part in the transformation of the ages as Christ has been transformed from death to life. And now you once again see why it was the risen Christ that stopped that Jewish Pharisee on that Damascus road. Nothing less than a bodily resurrection would have arrested him and changed his mind and heart and all of an evil alienation. Nothing less. So crucial is the resurrection of Jesus to Paul and to the Colossians. Now, If all this narrative story in Christ is the reality of the state of the question, why does verse 23 contain a condition? If you continue in the faith. It would seem that we have another contradiction. A contradiction between what has been accomplished in Christ and what has been accomplished or is being accomplished in those in Christ. In other words, being presented in Christ as a new creation is conditional. It is conditional on continuing in the faith, or so it would appear. The implication would be that if you do not continue in the faith, you have taken yourself out of union with Christ. Now, we encounter here in Paul what we so frequently encounter elsewhere in the whole of the inspired word of God. What we encounter here, as we encounter elsewhere in the scriptures, is the concurrence, concurrence of exhortation and effectuation. The concurrence of exhortation and effectuation. Now that word concurrence means running together, literally from the Latin concoro, to run together with. The concurrence of running together exhortation and effectuation. They run together. They do not run separately. They do not run independently. They run together. The one featuring human responsibility, exhortation. The other featuring divine responsibility, effectuation, or God the Lord effecting union with Christ. God the Lord effectually joining sinners to his beloved Son as Savior. Effectuation, meaning producing the effect. This is the sovereign God who produces the effect. This is sola gratia, which is by his effectual power alone. Now, these two things, exhortation and effectuation, act concurrently. And from Genesis to Revelation, you will see them act concurrently. God urges, God exhorts sinners to act in faith, continue in faith, be immovable in faith. And at the same time, concurrently, God effects that faith 
God sustains that faith. God makes faith immovable to those in Christ. God effects what he exhorts. God makes actual what appears conditional. The harmony, not contradiction, the harmony between exhortation and effectuation is in God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. It is all of God working to effect union of sinners with his son, Jesus Christ, even as he concurrently exhorts them to continue in that effect by being united to Christ. The exhortation does not make the union with Christ breakable. The exhortation makes the union more lovely, more sweet, more delightful, more attractive, more peaceable. Concurrence, the simultaneous working together of divine exhortation and divine effectuation is the key to the plan of redemption and the perfect harmony of divine and human relationship. As the Colossians are exhorted to continue in the faith, so the faith effected in them by union with Christ is continued. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and keep on believing because it is God the Lord who is at work in your believing and belief. Concurrently, they mutually reflect and harmonize with one another. This is not a case of Arminian conditionality. So the if question in verse 23 is part of the concurrent paradigm, the whole picture. It does not stand outside of the God who is working within you so that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The two are never divided. They are always concurrent running together. And you know that. You know that when you hear those exhortations and urging pleas of the scriptures to make your calling and election sure, you know that it runs together with the fact that you've been assured that you've been called and elected. Because you rest not upon your experience, but you rest upon Christ. He is the place where perfect harmony exists between that concurrent responsibility of the divine and the human. If you're ever troubled by the matter, go back to Christ. Lean yourself upon the Lord Jesus. Don't lean yourself upon your experience or your understanding. Lean yourself upon the person, upon the story, upon the glory, upon the heavenly majesty of this one who has been your substitute, your vicar, your I-died-in-your-place person. Lean your heart upon Jesus. And when the exhortations come, sweetly go back to lean your heart upon Jesus again and again and again. And you keep on in faith, leaning on Jesus, because you've been united to Jesus been united to Jesus, to lean on Jesus. Do it. Any questions or comments about this section? Then let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that what is so often mysterious to us is very clearly laid out in who you are and what you do. You are not a God who acts to join us, unite us under your Son, and then abandon us. You are a God who acts to join us and then continues to act in us. That is your promise. That's the way you work. Our weakness does not destroy your strength. Our unbelief does not destroy your faithfulness. Our individual sins does not remove the forgiveness of sins that you've granted. We repent and are sorry for them and we pray, O Lord, that you renew and refresh us. 
in the grace of the Lord Jesus and the holiness of walking after you in truth and integrity. But do not disturb our minds, we pray, O Lord, with false gospels and with those who would take away from us the precious perseverance of the saints, the way you work perfectly, harmoniously, clearly, even when we don't understand. We thank you, O Lord, for this realm of the new creation. Thank you for the litany of its glory. We thank you for the narrative of the Colossian Christians and Paul's own narrative. But we bless you above all that Christ took that narrative of alienation, hostility, and evil upon himself so that we might be left with his perfectly holy, blameless, and irreproachable biography. Thank you for laying that to our account and for sweetly joining us to him. Let us flourish and rejoice in it. Bless us in the the life and testimony to it. Encourage your people wherever they understand it. Help them to lean steadfastly on Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.